the National Archives podcast series, tracing births and deaths at sea on British and colonial registered merchant ships. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, talk on tracing births and deaths at sea. Um, For those of you that are hopeful that you will find one single source which gives the births and deaths of any British subject at sea are in, I'm afraid, for a little bit of a surprise. There is not such a uh, (coughs) uh, composite set of records, much as we would all wish there is. It's actually quite a complex subject. Uh, Where to search, what records to look in, depends on where the ship was registered and the destination of the ship. Uh, Not so much on the the nationality of the individual involved, although there is some dependence on the nationality of the individual and the port of departure of the ship. And, of course, it has to be different for the Merchant Navy and Royal Navy. Uh, First of all, a few key legal milestones, and the most important of those, I think, is probably the provision for registration of births and deaths in England and Wales on the 1st of July 1837, And there was provision in that Registration Act for the births of children at sea to English or Welsh fathers and deaths of what the legislation calls English and Welsh subjects of Her Majesty uh, uh, that occurred at sea. There are a few later later acts, but that really is the key one. And that act applied to Britain and its colonies at the time. But a few pitfalls, of course. If the event took place in territorial waters, it should be registered in the normal General Register Office series. But not always. Even the registrars themselves weren't quite sure what should happen. If it was a crew member of a merchant ship, it was often, certainly in the earlier uh, part of that uh, Uh, registration period it was uh, quite often not reported to the general register office and of course a crew member of a merchant vessel may actually have died ashore and not necessarily on the ship if it's military personnel they could as well as being in the uh, registers of death at sea could be in the army service or war death registers so for example the death of Lord Kitchener when HMS Hampshire went down on the First World War is actually uh, in the service registers and not in the marine death registers. It could also be reported at the next port of call of the ship, so you might need to try the consular returns and the local records. And colonial ships in their own waters, you should try the records of that colony. Now, the regulations for registration of such events on board British merchant ships are set out quite clearly in every ship's logbook. But, as I've said already, it does exclude dominion or colonial ships within the jurisdiction of the government of the British possession to which they belong. Now, what are the primary sources for for British merchant ships? Well, the official logbook is the key but those were only introduced in October 1851. 
Now, the crew list before that date, or indeed for a period afterwards, may also contain references to deaths at sea, and deaths at sea and births at sea, even for passengers, not just for the crew. There's also a birth and death form which would be filed at an intermediate port should that not be the port at which the official logbook was finally to be surrendered. A passenger list as well for any nationality uh, vessel arriving or departing in the UK. In practice, it's for those arriving, although there is provision in the legislation for departing ships. You may in some circumstances find a surgeon's journal, and in particular series ADM 101 and MT3 here at TNA do contain a number of surgeon's journals, though unfortunately only a selection. There are some later ones at the Admiralty Library, but most of those are for a much later time period and are uh, almost certainly um, covered by uh, a 30-year minimum exclusion. And there are some records related to inquiries at deaths at sea uh, in BT341, covering the war years and also from 1964 as an odd year. But the entries in those records are not easy to locate, and it's quite often necessary to use secondary sources as a way into these. But the secondary sources, unfortunately, are incomplete. Let's have a look, though, at some of the primary sources, and you'll see what you're likely to find. Here's an example of a logbook, and in every logbook there is a uh, a tabular section recording births and deaths, and marriages, should that be the case, but we're only looking at births and deaths at the moment which should give the place of death, the name of the individual, the sex, the age, uh, the rating of him, and a last place of abode. And those would appear, the official logbooks were required from October 1851 onwards. But if you find that entry, don't stop there, because there is a uh, textual part, or a narrative part of the logbook, which is likely to cover additional details. This particular one, uh, in fact, uh, adds to the fact that the uh, death of this particular individual took place at 4 p.m. on the 26th of November 1915 at sea, but it gives you the latitude and longitude, so you can find out exactly where the death occurred. And it tells us, in this case, that Patrick McGowan, a trimmer, died suddenly in the stokehold from syncope and fatty degeneration of the heart. But don't stop there. There's a further entry which records and gives the position uh, that the body of Patrick McGowan, Trimmer, was committed to the deep and a Church of England burial service held. As I said earlier, crewists may well record such events. On the back of the list C, which is a particular type of crew list, um, you will find provision for, for recording births, deaths and indeed marriages. And particulars can occur on crew lists from about 1863 till about the early 1890s. Um, And clearly, uh, births are unlikely uh, during that time period to be to a member of crew, as a pregnant lady was unlikely to be uh, a member of the crew at that period. Um, And also, as we'll see in a moment, there are deaths recorded uh, there as well. The returns of births and deaths, the B and D1 form, had to be filed at the first port after the event occurred, unless that is the port at which the logbook had to be surrendered. Now, most of those are to be found at the National Maritime Museum. As you'll see from this list, 
uh, none seem to have survived before 1913, although they certainly uh, were in existence. The National Maritime Museum has them from 1914 to 1919. There's a gap from 1920 to 1938 when none appear to exist. And after that, 1939 to to 64, there are two separate series split into passengers and crew, uh, which are at the NMM. And after that date, from 1965 onwards, the Registry of Shipping and Seamen holds them. And here is an example of a particular uh, B&D-1 form, which records the death, in this case, of two of the crew. Um, You'll note that they are split up, and um, passengers are separated out from crew and from Laskers and other Asiatic seamen. There seemed to be little concern at that time period um, as to the um, Asiatic seamen. As you'll see from here, it says, simply nine members of native crew, engine department, missing, not even named. They were presumably recorded on a uh, set of crew lists which were termed Asiatic agreements, which we don't have at TNA, and if they do survive at all, uh, should be found somewhere on the Indian subcontinent. The B&D-1 form should have an attachment to it duplicating the death entry in the logbook. So if you want to know the gory details, and sometimes they can be very gory, they should be recorded here. And we note on this particular uh, one, um, that it says from at 20.30, when the vessel had swung to tide, the harbour master proceeded ashore to obtain berthing instructions and report engine defects. At about 20.38, Wong Top Ho, donkey man, was observed to be entering my day room with large quantities of blood pouring from him. As the vessel was able to drag, I was unable to leave the bridge and sent D.H. Rutherford to my room to investigate. The donkeyman had collapsed on the floor and he was removed out on deck. One gets the feeling the master was more concerned about the state of his cabin than the state of the uh, donkeyman. But it goes on to say, I rushed off the bridge and made a rapid examination and observed the arteries under the right armpit had been badly lacerated. The chief officer was called to render first aid and was very quickly on the scene. He did everything possible to save the man's life and applied forceps to the severed arteries. Passenger lists do also contain details of births and deaths that were recorded on the voyage. And those are to be found amongst the inward passenger lists which survive here uh, at TNA in record series BT 26 from 1878 onwards. There are, of course, equivalent uh, inward passenger lists in most countries in the world, and they may well record these as well. You will note on the very bottom of this particular uh, entry uh, that the form records that there is also a separate return of births and deaths to be filled up by the commander and sent to the Registrar-General of uh, Seamen under a penalty of £5. So although you will see from here the details are much less than you would find in the uh, registers uh, of the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen, uh, they are in fact a duplicate, or should be a duplicate of the information. Let me now turn to the secondary sources, and in particular those uh, kept by the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen. That, in case there's any confusion, is quite different from the Registrar-General of Births, Marriages and Deaths. The Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen, first of all, looking at deaths at sea, 
From 1854 onwards, the RGSS compiled registers from the information supplied by the masters of ships, from logbooks and from returns and the like. Those registers are now to be found here at the National Archives. Record series BT-158, starting in 1854, going up to 1887 for passengers, and that is available online at findmypast.com. Record series BT-160 overlaps slightly with that, starting in 1875 and going up to 1880, 1890, I beg your pardon, and that's noted as being for British nationals. And I put that in quotes here because it is separated into Ireland, Scotland and England, being the registrar's general of births and deaths to whom those returns are sent. And those for England was the destination for not English, just English and Welsh people, but all people apart from Irish and Scottish. So that includes all foreigners. Everything is uh, continued on in one series, BT334, uh, from 1891 onwards, and we have those here up to 1960. And here's a typical entry that you will see from there. Uh, listing name and description of the parents, the date of birth of the child, his sex, Christian name given to the child, if at all, and when given. You'll notice, rather interestingly, that a significant number of these individuals are, in fact, related to army personnel. And that is not uncommon. And if you have a, uh, a, a birth of a child to a serving individual in the British Army. Remember that they were being sent around the world and they were being sent by ship. Deaths at sea. Well, there are some early registers relating to wages and effects of deceased seamen on voyages to West Indies in a miscellaneous uh, series, ADM 80. Uh, those, unfortunately, are unindexed. The main set starts in 1852, goes on to 1889, although there is one gap where the register uh, was sent to the Treasury uh, sometime in the 1880s for audit purposes and never came back. Some of those are arranged by cause of death, and they do have indexes by ships and by seamen's names. Deaths at sea from 1854 onwards the registers compiled from the logbooks and returns, uh, series of BT 158 to 160, um, covers the period 1854 to 1890, and uh, BT 158 at least, which is those related to passengers, is to be found online in findmypass.com. Uh, they carry on from 1891 onwards to up to 1964, in this case in record series BT 334. And the same proviso about the um, statement in, uh, in the catalogue describing one of the series of registers as relating to British nationals. The returns related to England and Wales do include foreigners. Here's an example of deaths at sea related to dead men's wages in ADM 180 and effectively it gives the name of the ship, uh, the dead man's name and the amount of wages that were due to him. The registers compiled by the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen, first of all, there are wages and effects uh, ledgers, which have a similar information to those in the one that you've just seen. If you find a death in there, have a look 
under the ones classified by cause, you might get a surprise or two. This particular one, I was looking for somebody who had supposedly been murdered and came across this uh, one. I hope it didn't include one of your ancestors because it says, a number of Melanesian labourers on the way home to Malaita in the Solomon group have eaten up the entire crew of the ship and plundered the vessel. The captain and mate were resident of Apia. The crew consisted of Patagonians and other Polynesians. More usually, you'll find amongst the registers of deaths at sea, one here in series BT158, um, giving the name and description of the parties, the sex, the age, um, and the place of birth of the individual, uh, the cause of death and date of death. Um, and again, you'll find a number of soldiers uh, listed there as well. From 1891 onwards, you'll find these registers in series BT334. You'll find, for some time periods, there may be two registers. And that's explained by the fact that one of the registers relates to the entries as recorded by the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen. And you will note that there's a column in here which tells us which of the Registrar-Generals of births, marriages and deaths should whom the death have been reported to. And in some cases there was a dash in that column. In other words, it was never reported to a Registrar-General of births and deaths. Why, you might ask? Well, a number of reasons. One of them being that the death actually took place ashore. In this particular case, the one I'm pointing at, took place in a hospital in Valencia. So although the ship's captain was required to make note of that in the logbook, and the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen duly recorded it in his registers, as far as the General Register offices were concerned, that took place in a foreign country and was therefore not a death at sea. And unless it happened to have been reported also to the consular authorities, there would be no further record of it in this country. The other thing, when you do look at these registers, keep a very careful lookout down this column. Don't just note E against it and take your notes home, because most of the time you will find in there E, S and I for England, Scotland and Ireland, or more recently NI for Northern Ireland. But at some time periods, the Registrar-General of, of Seamen thought he would put instead D for Dublin, E for Edinburgh and L for London. So when you get home and wonder what E means, you'll regret the fact that you didn't scan down the column to see which system he was used. So keep a watch out for that. The last column tells you what, in fact, the particular documents were to derive this entry from. Now, most of them, and the ones who understand are LB for logbook, and I or 1 for a B and D1 form. You'll notice on some of them, like the one I'm pointing to, it says I. In other words, the initial entry was taken from a B and D1 form, but subsequently the logbook was returned, LB, and it gives the date 1014, so it was returned in October 1914. 
The second set of registers, which you will find intermingled with these, are split up according to the General Register Office to whom the data was sent. So this may well contain less entries, uh, certainly by virtue of the fact that it will, in this case, where we're looking one for England, it will have removed the ones for Scotland and Ireland, but it may well have removed those ones that weren't reported to the General Register Office. So if there are two covering a particular time period, look at both to be sure. Now, what has the General Register Office got for births and deaths at sea? Well, from 1837, the entries from the logbooks were sent directly to the General Register Office by the master of the ship. Later, obviously, in Scotland and Ireland, 1855 and 1864, uh, when the general registration began in those two countries. No logbook entries appear to have been retained by the General Register Office in England and Wales, although I believe they may have discovered some in a basement somewhere. Uh, but we're still investigating that. But all the details have been copied into, into their uh, registers anyway. Now, they are incomplete from merchant vessels. There appears to have been a degree of confusion as to who should send what to whom. From 1874 onwards, things do clarify because reports from merchant ships were forwarded by the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen uh, to the General Register Offices. Though, as I've said, uh, not every event was recorded for example, those where the death actually occurred ashore. And there are separate indexes to marine registers available on microfiche and online for England and Wales and available online for Scotland. But for the reasons I've explained, the records of the General Register Office are incomplete um, and you might wish to search the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen's records as well. Now, this is a typical birth entry in the registers. You won't normally see this, of course, because what you will get is a certified copy. This is a copy, um, a photograph taken of the actual register itself, and um, it will give uh, the details that you would expect, name, sex, name of father, name and maiden name of mother, uh, rank and profession of father, and the signature of the master. In Scotland... You will find all that, but you may well find additional information because registration in Scotland required more details. Now, that detail is not often recorded in the logbook, although it should have been. There was provision for the additional details to be recorded where it was a Scottish uh, uh, subject, but uh, quite often they didn't bother. And in this particular case, the uh, Registrar-General in Scotland actually went to the local registrar uh, who set about finding out the additional details that were normally required by Scottish registration. So whilst I would normally advise don't bother to get a certificate if you find it in our registers here because it isn't going to tell you any more, in the case of Scotland, that's not the, necessarily the case. Now, what should your search strategy be? Well, first of all, I would suggest you look at the General Register Office indexes and records, first of all, even though they're incomplete, because they are in general well indexed and if you find the entry there you've saved yourself a lot of search time but then go on whether you have found the entry or not to look at the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen's records as appropriate because they do contain entries not sent to the General Register Office and if you find the entries uh, in one or other of those then follow them up in the logbook the crew list the B&D one form the passenger list and the surgeon's journal well, so far, we've talked about British registered ships. 
But what about those from the dominions and colonies? Well, as I've said earlier on, the regulations for British merchant ships exclude dominion or colonial ships within the jurisdiction of the government of the British possession to which they belong. And I want to draw your attention perhaps to three particular categories. First of all, the records of the Land and Emigration Commission They were involved with encouraging emigration to the colonies. And their their records contain a number of registers that relate to births to immigrants and deaths of emigrants at sea on their ships. These include ships to the Australian colonies, New Zealand, the South African colonies, India and the Falklands. And for deaths, they cover 1847 to 1869. For births, a much shorter period, 1847 to 1854. They name those who died. In general, they tend to give just the number of births and how many had survived or died. So here in CO386, you'll find an entry that relates to the ship Whitby, and it gives uh, a certain amount of departure information about it on the left-hand page. But if we turn over to the right-hand page, you will find it gives details of the deaths on the voyage. And if we blow that up a little bit, you will see that Martha Louisa Carter, age 38, had died on the voyage, as had George Draper, age 34. There had been five births on the voyage, not named. Uh, On the the entry further down, it does note that um, on a different ship here, the eight births and one had died. Clearly more information was recorded at some time because in private hands, uh, one a gentleman uh, provided me with a copy of a document in his private collection. And it says, this is to certify that I, Francis Sherlock, by appointment of the Colonial Land and Emigration Commissioners, religious teacher and schoolmaster on board the above vessel. That was the Bark Whitby of London that we were looking at a moment ago. There being no clergyman on board... On Friday, the 16th day of March, 1849, at the hour of 10 o'clock in the forenoon nautical time and at latitude um, 13 degrees 14 uh, minutes 45 seconds north, longitude 22 degrees 54 minutes 50 seconds west, did read the service of burial of the dead for those who died at sea according to the rites and ceremonies of the United Church of England and Ireland when the body of Martha Louisa Carter deceased, wife of John Benjamin Carter, emigrant to Port Phillip, that's Melbourne, was committed to the deep. Pity all that detail hadn't been retained in official sources, but that's the luck of the draw. There are quite a number of such details, though, recorded for those who died en route to South Australia in the South Australian Government Gazette, particularly for 1865 and 66. So if we look at that particular entry... Um, That was the return for one ship aboard an an emigrant ship, and it gives details of the dates of death of um, five individuals on there. And there's a complete set brought together in one of the 1866 gazettes, and those gazettes are here at, uh, or there is a copy of them at uh, at least, because they are printed in the multiple versions here in series CO16. 
If you're interested in South Australia, in fact, a number of those have been well indexed, and there's Deaths on Emigrant Ships to South Australia, 1849 to 1866, by Frank Hall, which have been extracted from there and nicely and conveniently indexed for you. There's also a CD-ROM bound for South Australia, Births and Deaths on Government-Assisted Immigrant Ships, 1848 to 1885, and the creators of that have not only looked in the registers or the returns in CO385, but have also looked at a lot of material in the state records of South Australia and have tabulated together details of the particular emigrant ships and details of any deaths and births aboard those ships. And some of them here is an example of a return of a surgeon's report, which is in fact in State Records South Australia, uh, where the surgeon priorly noted that there had been no deaths on the voyage, which was extremely unusual. But there had been three births. If we turn now more specifically to Australia and have a look and see what's there, Australian regulations are set out in every logbook. They are based on UK law, which was adopted um, initially by Australia um, and the Merchant Shipping Act 1894, Section 240, Subsection 6, and Section 254, to be precise. They absorbed that in, and their Navigation Acts of 1912 to 1920, and their Navigation Master and Seaman's Regulations uh, developed those further. Basically, they can be summarised as follows. Australian and British registered and foreign ships carrying passengers to Australia had to report all events to the superintendent at the next port. For Australian ships not bound for a port in Australia and British ships not carrying passengers to Australia, they had to report the event to the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen. So the bottom of those is not surprising. We look in the records of the RGSS. The one above, reporting to the superintendent at the next port, is an additional provision. And it's perhaps pertinent to flag up at this occasion do not be surprised if you find registration of such events in two or three or even four different places. Now, all Australian states and territories make provision for registration of births and deaths on ships arriving at their port, so find the normal registry sources in each of those states and territories. The Australian Maritime Safety Authority does extract and record entries from logbooks of Australian flagged ships, and they still have some registers. Their inquiry files for deaths eventually go to the National Archives of Australia, as do the logbooks. The Australian equivalent of a and d one form have not gone to the National Archives of Australia, and nobody seems to know where they've gone. I presume they have probably been destroyed. There's also some material to be found in state records offices. Now, if we look at what the Australian Maritime Safety Authority have, they have registers of deaths and accidents of seamen, and they will give you perhaps the sort of detail you might expect, the person's name, his sex, his age, his capacity, uh, where he was born, and details of the ship he was on, date of death, uh, the location of the death in latitude and longitude, and what he had died of. 
Now, if you go and look in each of the indexes to births or deaths in each of the Australian states or territories, I took this one for Western Australia because that's conveniently online, and I just put in at sea and see what it threw up. Well, that was the first page of them, so there are lots of them. For the state of Victoria, life is even easier. There's a CD-ROM which contains all of them, births, deaths and marriages from 1853 to 1920. And the sort of thing you're likely to find, we'll look at this one in a little more detail in a moment, is a birth on the ship, Dorset, giving names of the child, names of the parents, the informants and so forth. As I say, we'll look at this one in a little more detail in a moment. And they do indeed contain a register of deaths. This particular one is not that legible, but we should, as researchers, get used to a variety of different hands. Some registers are to be found in state records offices, and whilst we remain or return to Western Australia, the State Record Office of Western Australia holds ones which were reported to the Harbour and Lights Department. Records of shipping casualties, records <coughs> of births and deaths at sea off the Western Australian coast. And this, that particular one here, the deaths of the Western Australian coast give the date the entry was re received, the name of the vessel, the name of the deceased, the birth, birthplace, capacity of the passenger, age, cause of death, and date and place of death. You may also choose, in particular with Australia, you're well served for locating them, not just to look in the official logs, but look in other journals of the voyage. They were quite often reported in newspapers and the like uh, on arrival in Australia, and there are three printed volumes called The Log of Logs by Ian Nicholson that will help you locate those. There's a similar but much smaller one uh, published on fish by the New Zealand Society of Genealogists related to logbooks related to ships uh, arriving in New Zealand. Let's have a look now and turn to Canada. Well, Canada, like Australia, is, has a dual... Um, level of government. The federal government, the regulations are by the Shipping and Seamen Act 1873, which again is based on the British Merchant Shipping Act, and the master must record births and deaths in the logbook, and the logbook must be surrendered to the port authorities. And lists of these events are sent to the province where the ship is registered. Well, in many cases, that's news to the provincial authorities. But the provincial laws vary. Records may, in the case of Manitoba, uh, they record the events transmitted under the shipping Canada, Canada Shipping Act. Quebec, on the other hand, records events related to residents of the province. British Columbia records events where the next port of call is in the province. And none of those agencies could be advise me as to the starting dates of those records. So there is a degree of confusion. The logbook certainly will record the event, and those would normally be found in Library and Archives Canada. So we'll find here, for a logbook delivered to Vancouver on the 28th of February 1938, for the ship Imperial, that listed there was A.G. Parry, 
who had died uh, on that ship. The logbook records that Dr. Beatty of Ioko arrived on board at 9.35 a.m. and after examining Mr. Parry, pronounced life extinct, probably from acute heart failure. Well, if you look at the temperature outside in which he was working, it would hardly surprise you. The Canadian Registry of, Ship of Seafarers does have a card index system running from about 1930, which records births and deaths and the occasional marriage aboard a ship. Despite its name, this includes passengers as well as crew, and Albert G. Parry is included amongst them. Now, events at sea, British Columbia, as I mentioned, the Vital Statistics Act there requires that if the birth or death of a person occurs on an aircraft or ship whose first stop after the birth or death is in British Columbia, the chief executive officer may register the birth or death. The historical indexes commence in 1872, and a search under At Sea reveals 261 deaths between 1890 and 1976, so a fair number, but no births appear, so presumably they were registered under the place rather than simply at sea. And in those records we will find Albert Parry again, and if you look at his entry on there, you'll find details of it, that the death occurred at Port Moody in the city of Ioka on board the tanker Imperial. And it gives lots of other details, including the undertaker um, who had the responsibility for registering the event and disposing of the body. In Canada, there are also some newspaper indexes. Um, Newfoundland, which is associated with shipping in quite a large way. Somebody has gone through and extracted entries of births, deaths and marriages, and those do include quite a number, 128 at sea, and you can find details of those recorded and references to the newspaper itself. <coughs> Let's have a look at a couple of specific examples to see where some of these records might lead you. Let's have a look at a birth, first of all. Now, tracking down the primary sources can be quite a paper chase. So let's have a look at a typical problem. A child born to a British married couple, the father is English and the mother is Irish, probably on a British registered ship, off the coast of Victoria or South Australia, headed for a port in Victoria. The family continued on to and settled in New Zealand, and the birth was not registered in New Zealand. So you'll notice one thing, first of all, you've got to potentially look at the records of three countries to start with. Now, Kathleen Mary Adelaide Smither, born the 2nd of November 1906, father Arthur John Reeve Smither is English, and the mother Kathleen Agnes McGowan is Irish. The birth occurred on SS Dorset off Cape Nelson in Victoria. The ship was headed for Melbourne and the family settled in Lincoln near Christchurch in New Zealand by 1918 and she at that time had married a John Wakeley Hartnell there in 1928. The first clue should come from the marriage certificate because that should give her birthplace. Unfortunately, it gives... Here, Wellington in New Zealand. 
which happens to be where the ship docked. But she was, in fact, born at sea. Now, following the birth, what should the master have done? Well, first of all, he should have made an entry in the logbook. He should have added the infant's name to the passenger list. On the ship's arrival in Melbourne, which was the next port of the call, the master was required under Victorian law to register the child's birth with the Office of the Government Statist. And he was supposed to file an inward passenger list with the port authorities. Under UK law, he had to file a B&D1 form with the Mercantile Marine Office, which was then forwarded to the RGSS in London, who registered the birth based on the B&D1 form and made an who made an appropriate return to the General Register Office. On the ship's arrival in Sydney, the master, according to New South Wales law, had to file an inward passenger list with the, with the port authorities, which should have included the infant on it. On the ship's arrival in both Auckland and Wellington, the master should, according to New Zealand law, have filed an inward passenger list with the port authorities, including the infant, of course. And on the ship's return to the UK, the master, according to UK law, should have to file the logbook with the port authorities, who sent it to the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen, who annotated the registers accordingly. Well, there's quite a number of places you could find the event recorded, aren't there? Well, first of all, if you look in the Victorian Marine Births Register, you will indeed find an entry for that individual. And you will note that the birth occurred very shortly before the ship docked, two days at most. And the uh, registration of the event took place one day after the ship arrived. So perhaps for that reason, you will find if you look in the database in inward passenger lists, those that include the mother, Kate Smithers, misspelt of course, but not the infant child. So the child was not listed, perhaps because the birth was too late for the name to be added to the passenger list. The father, incidentally, had arrived five months previously, and he is to be found in those records as well. The Dorset, the ship bringing the mother, went on to Wellington, where the mother had booked a ticket, and the Arontes that had carried the father uh, out some five months earlier went to Sydney, where, to where the father had bought a ticket. How he got on to New Zealand, we've not, I've not discovered. If you look at the inward passenger list for Melbourne, um, you will find on there an entry for Kate Smithers, giving her age, and um, not sure what that particular word reads. Um, tantalisingly, it gives here, and it's normally adding up the number of passengers, 37 and a half. Whether the half was the infant or not, I don't know, but the name is not recorded. And unfortunately, in the summary, uh, which you'd find normally on the last page of the passenger list, it does not give the number of adults or children there. <clears throat> I put up here another entry from the uh, online database, as I showed you earlier, just to show that infants are recorded there on a number of ships as well. If we look at the outward passengers list from Liverpool, we will discover that Kate Smither is listed in the outward passenger list, departing on Liverpool on the 14th of September 1906, aged 22 years, seemingly travelling alone. 
contracted to land in Melbourne, in Wellington, beg your pardon. If we look at the inward passenger list of Sydney, which was the next port of call after Melbourne, she is indeed listed there, but again, the infant isn't listed. The inward passenger lists to New Zealand. There is one surviving for Auckland, uh, but nothing for Wellington. Uh, it could be that just a single list on first arrival in New Zealand was all that was uh, produced in that, at that date. Uh, but if you look at the inward passenger list, you'll find she's listed there. But again, the infant is not listed. But when the voyage ended in London on the 26th of February 1907, the library book was filed and finally reached the RGSS on in 15th of March 1907. And we'll find the entry there, both in the tabular section and in the narrative section of the logbook. And in this particular case, it does give a little bit of information about the confinement of Kate Smither and uh, what she went through in giving birth. Those entries are then transferred to the register kept by the Registrar-General of Shipping and Seamen in series BT-334, and we'll find the entry here for the ship, the Dorset, giving the details and noting that it was a, a B&D-1 form and later a logbook from which the information was taken. The information will also be found in the indexes to marine births for England and Wales because the father was English. It was irrelevant what the nationality of the mother was. She was Irish-born, but the entry does not occur in the Irish registers. And if we look at the um, registers which are kept at the General Register Office for England and Wales, you'll find the entry and the normal form that you will see it is in the form of a certificate like this. So tracking down the primary sources can be a paper chase. It may be across many states or countries, but can be well worth the effort. Incidentally, when I gave this talk at a, at a conference in Darwin, one of the audience came up to me and... Um, said, I know, I live in New Zealand and I know the son of that lady. So it, you can get some, uh, some uh, coincidences. Um, the lady herself is uh, long since deceased, um, but she wasn't 100% sure that she'd, die, uh, that she'd been born at uh, sea, but suspected so because she had the name Adelaide in, uh, as one of her three names. Let's finally have a look at a death. A somewhat sad one, I regret to say. And this relates to the family of Thomas and Anne Urquhart, who left with six children from Aberdeen, headed for New Zealand. They embarked at Southampton on the SS Iconic on the 24th of July, 1924. And they were destined for Wellington in New Zealand, and they arrived there on the 21st of September. The departing passenger list, which is to be found at, here at TNA in BT 27, lists the the whole family, giving their address, occupation, and ages. Unfortunately, Mrs. Urquhart, Anne Urquhart, dies en route, and the family have a 
a letter written by some fellow passengers. The father was in fact a mason and uh, he, uh, there were a number of masons on board and they wrote a letter of sympathy to him on the death of his wife and the death of a stillborn child. Being Scottish, we can search the indexes to marine births or marine deaths for Anne McIntosh, and that will show up there, and we'll find an entry uh, there as well. And it said, collapse following the birth of a stillborn child and eclampsia. If we look in the logbook, we will find that there are two entries in the tabular section. We will find the death there of Anne McIntosh Urquhart, um, giving the same details. But we will also find details of the fact that there was a stillborn child born. Not recorded as died because being stillborn deaths are only recorded at that date for uh, live individuals who, who died. And this is before um, 1927 when stillborn <coughs> well, when stillbirths were officially registered. If we look in the logbook, we will find that, in fact, there are three entries there. One, recording Anne Urquhart giving birth to a stillborn male child, and the fact the child was buried. The second, recording the death of Anne Urquhart, and the third, recording the burial of Anne Urquhart. The registers for the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen, the um, ones for deceased passengers do, of course, include uh, Anne Mc... Can't read the word. Anne Macintosh Urquhart there, uh, and record the fact that her death was reported to the Registrar General for Scotland. No entry for the stillborn child, except the indexes. The indexes to births record under births, Urquhart, no first name, on the iconic, and instead of giving a reference to the month in which it was, or the year in which it was recorded and to whom it was recorded, simply says stillborn. And if you look under the ship iconic, you'll find here again uh, Urquhart, stillborn child. So the indexes do record the information, but not uh, the registers themselves. You can, from those, actually see the complete trail for locations where these events took place. So a lot of information, a lot of sources. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on December the 14th, 2006, at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Dr. Christopher Watts. This podcast is copyright for National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>